This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Ellen Liebeter. Today, a look into the benefits of playgroups for parents. And for me, it's a bit of a sanity check because, again, I can get out of the house and I end up being able to make friends with and just chat with other mums. It's nice to have a conversation with adults. And what happens to a woman's body during pregnancy? But first on the show, how can we deliver better care for people living with dementia? This was the main question being discussed by a panel at the University of Technology Sydney this week, which brought together nurses, GPs, researchers and those impacted by the disease. Resources, research, medication and strategies were all discussed at length with the panel of experts. But the common thread between all of their messages is that we need to be having better conversations and communicating more clearly to ensure that the person suffering from dementia is the one making decisions about how their life should look. Nina Kopel was there and filed this report. When people receive a diagnosis of dementia for themselves or a loved one, many don't realise it's a terminal illness. This was the case for Imelda Gilmore, whose husband Graham lives with younger onset dementia and is in residential care. We think, oh my goodness, my husband is going to die. That's, that's not something that came into my head for ages. But as Graham's illness progressed and he started to become cognitively impaired, she started thinking about what would come next. And that meant dealing with things like wills, the power of attorney, guardianship, and perhaps most importantly, about the ongoing conversations that needed to take place. I see my privilege at the moment is to walk my husband through the final stages of his life, to know what what his values are and to know what he would want and to have the honour of, of making sure that everything is provided the way he would want it as peacefully as possible, well, that means everything to me. And I know he will only get one chance to do, to do this. I will only get one chance to walk him through this. So knowing that hopefully I can do that in the best possible way, I think that's got to help in the healing process. So what are these conversations all about? Well, it's a way of making sure that other people know your wishes in the event that you're unable to make the decisions yourself. In many cases, this results in an advanced care plan, which would then be used by medical staff as well. So this is a story about the effectiveness of an advanced care plan. Professor Dimity Pond is from the School of Medicine and Public Health at the University of Newcastle, and she told this story to emphasise the difference one conversation, or even a series of conversations, can make in caring for dementia sufferers at the end of their life. So I'm a GP. I was looking after the mother of a colleague in residential aged care. So I used to talk to this colleague quite regularly on the phone, actually. 
So I knew that there was an advanced care plan. His mother gradually got to the stage where she could no longer remember his name and she was having difficulty swallowing. With advanced dementia, you lose the capacity to coordinate your swallowing and food sometimes goes down the wrong way and you can get a chest infection. And that's what happened to her. Now, the staff in the facility wanted to send her to hospital. But I knew that there was a plan somewhere, and we found it. We dug it out from the back of the drawer. She'd been there for quite a few years. And it said very clearly, I do not want to go to hospital, and I do not want intravenous medication. It was enormously helpful for me as a GP and for the staff to know that this was her wishes. And, of course, we'd talked to the son... But this was actually in her own hand and signed by her. So it was a legal document that enabled us to keep her in the facility. So I gave her some antibiotics by mouth and she got a little bit better. And that gave time for the family to come down from interstate and visit and say goodbye. And we kept her a little bit sedated so she wasn't too anxious and then she died very peacefully about five days later and you know the quality of that death surrounded by her family and staff that she knew that was what anyone would wish given that we all have to die but having the right conversation in the right way isn't always easy deborah parker professor of nursing at western sydney university was also on the panel and she was highlighting some of the new resources that could help families in this process what I was talking about today was a framework of care that we've developed, which is called the Palliative Approach Toolkit that's been rolled out across every residential aged care facility in Australia. And within that, there's a number of sort of critical points by which family members and people with dementia can express their wishes and talk about what it is that they want. So that may be on entrance into a residential aged care facility. It may be when they're starting to have issues that are sending them to hospital, like falls or infections. Or it may be, unfortunately, at the very end of their life. Um, So the idea being really that it's important to have these conversations at multiple time points. So not waiting till the end, not waiting necessarily until something's happening, but being proactive. So I think a lot of the discussion today was about that, was... Um, whose responsibility is it, Uh, when should it occur and then what are the skill sets that people require to actually have those conversations because they're difficult conversations uh, to have. The conversations people have with their loved ones and the documents they go on to provide their medical team. Everyone on the panel was emphatic about this and yet the process isn't perfect. As people with dementia get moved from residential care to ambulances maybe to hospitals or wherever else their medical condition takes them, there seems to be a disconnect with ensuring their advanced care plan goes with them. We need to do more work on the system to try and get everything to link up. I think the electronic health record might help, but our consumer at the panel today said that despite there being a plan, in the electronic health record, it wasn't accessed when it was needed in one case with her husband. That consumer Professor Pond is talking about is Imelda Gilmore, whose husband has dementia and recently was taken to hospital after a fall. I assume that because the nursing home had his advanced care plan, 
that that would be communicated if he went to hospital because that was part of the idea of having it there, of course. And I was shocked to find that there was nothing like that that went with him to the hospital. And it was a case of Chinese whispers from the nursing home to the ambulance drivers and from the ambulance to the hospital and from the hospital to the um, staff caring for him. And I believe there should be some sort of a system where someone mentioned a yellow envelope and I imagine that's supposed to have this sort of information in it. Now, if it was always a Sunday morning when my husband fell, whether it's not made available to staff or whether they don't have time to go and put that material together, I don't know what the solution is, but I've been told that even if I put it on his record in the hospital where they take him that still may not get to the people who are caring for him in emergency. So I don't know what the process needs to be, but certainly we need to make some change there. So what is this disconnect here? Why are doctors and patients struggling to take a plan and put it into action? I asked this question to Dr Craig Sinclair, who was also on the panel. He's a research fellow at the Rural Clinical School of Western Australia. One thing that we've certainly found in, in our research in Western Australia is that we actually, from, from what we can see from the data that's coming in, people are actually having these discussions a lot more than we think about, than, than we think they are. Um, but, but often that information is not making it through into the health or the, the clinical encounter. And then when it does, obviously those, those problems that were talked about in terms of sharing that information across settings is a real challenge as well. I think, I think more broadly, perhaps in the context of, of dementia care, um, there are some beliefs uh, that are in certain parts of the community in terms of the, the capacity or the ability of a person with dementia to express their views or, or to make decisions. And I think that's also a barrier that needs to be addressed. So how can we include people more in that decision? I think it goes back to looking at what, what decision making is and, and what it I guess what it means for people. So the the work that's been done that's actually explored this with people with dementia has has really brought out this idea that being involved in decision making is a lot more than just having the decision go the way you want. It's a, it's a way of affirming one's own identity that I'm still actually, you know, here and and I think that's a really important message that that we need to be taking forward. Professor Pond agrees. So I think we need to be aware of this. We need to be looking for it. I think relatives and staff need to be proactive in making sure that that plan gets to to the hospital. So the GP needs to know, I've got this plan. If the person goes to hospital, I need to make sure I get it to the hospital. Residential aged care staff need to know the same. It's not just the medication list. It's the advanced care plan that needs to go in. So if you can link it to something like the medication list, which everyone knows should follow the patient, then perhaps we can get that to work a bit better. For Imelda Gilmore, this whole process, these plans, these conversations, they are done for one purpose. But, you you know, in a, in a situation, in a family situation, it is possible to to encircle that with with love and caring. But there will be a time when the person probably won't be able to communicate those sorts of wishes. So, you know, to find out what their wishes are is really important before it's too late. Imelda Gilmore, New South Wales Dementia Advocate for Alzheimer's Australia, ending that story by Nina Copel. 
You're listening to Think Health on 2SCR 107.3. It's well known that Playgroup benefits children, but what about the parents that tag along? Playgroup is a regular meeting of parents and children, usually in a local community centre, that gives kids a chance to play in a supervised space. It's different from daycare or preschool, where parents leave their kids for the day, and mother or father groups, which are designed for babies. Playgroup benefits children by allowing them to explore new environments and develop their social skills by interacting with other kids of different ages. But it's also a chance for parents to develop their social skills and maintain their workforce skills. It's a sunny autumn morning in Annandale in Sydney's inner west. In a community centre in the leafy suburb, children from a few months old to four years old are, well, being kids. There's kids on the trampoline, doing craft at a craft table, playing on the playground or sitting down and having a picnic. There's more kids screaming with laughter than screaming and the parents are all watching their children from a distance while laughing themselves. Jackie is the coordinator of the Annandale Playgroup and mother of two girls. Hi, I'm Jackie. I'm the mum of Ava, who's four, and Isabel, who's two. So how long have you been running the playgroup for? I've been running the playgroup this year, but I've been coming to Annandale Playgroup for four years. Ava's four, so I've been coming since she A ginger bread man! Okay, now, listen. Ellen is That's four-year-old Ava you can hear in the background. You'll hear more from her in a moment. Talking to the microphone. Okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, good girl. Um, so, yeah, I've been coming for four years since Ava was a baby. Jackie says the appeal of Playgroup is the fact her kids love it, and she does too. I enjoy the fact that my children enjoy it, that they look forward to it every week, that they say yay when it's Playgroup Day. Uh, I enjoy the social aspect for myself, connecting with other lovely mums and carers. Jackie's daughter Ava was the life of the party at Playgroup. She was dancing to the music, playing inside and talking to all the other kids and then jumping up and down on the trampoline. The usual four-year-old stuff. Today, though, she got to play with a new toy, my microphone. Hold the microphone and talk, Mummy. You have to ask Ellen's permission for that. Can I hold the microphone? You want to hold it? Yeah. (laughs) We could talk about Playgroup. Tell Ellen about it. Well... That's what she's interested to know. I like about Playgroup because it has every toy that I like. More toys than at home? More toys. (laughs) And the trampoline. And that is... This is Isabel and that's the other Isabel. And this is Jackie. Although a microphone isn't nearly as fun as a trampoline, so it was a short interview. It is easy to tell that the kids love it here. There is plenty for them to do and heaps of interaction with other kids as well as their parents. And that's what this story is about. The parents. One of our interviewees said, sure, playgroups are great for kids, but that tells only half the story. And that was really set the sort of tone for our our report. This is Ian McShane. 
Ian is a senior research fellow at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University in Melbourne. He has been looking at the benefit playgroups have on parents, which up until now has been neglected in the research. It's probably obvious to anyone who has ever been to a playgroup that the social benefits are easy to see. Parents have an opportunity to get out of the house and speak to other parents, for one. And it provided support, particularly for mums, at a period of time in their lives. It could be quite challenging and indeed quite isolating. And it built a kind of sense of place and social connectedness. This was something all parents at the Annandale Playgroup agreed with. Um, I get to interact with some adults and I'm not alone in the house by myself. So it can get a bit depressing. Um, for me, I think it's, again, it's meeting, it's meeting other mums, which I think is really, really good. And I've found everybody here to be really friendly, um, especially because it's other mums that live locally around you that you might then meet in a park and you've got someone to talk to. Um, and also just because it's a nice, safe environment, I know that I can sort of leave her. She doesn't need to be right next to me. She can go off and play while I've got my other child and I can look after them both at the same time. I really like the social interaction for my sons. Uh, they're one and three and they get to make lots of friends here. And for me, it's a bit of a sanity check because, again, I can get out of the house and I end up being able to make friends with and just chat with other mums. It's nice to have a conversation with adults. But it's not just parents. Carers, be it nannies or grandparents, also have an opportunity to be involved. My name's Rebecca, I'm 24, and I look after Mia as a carer for two days a week. How long have you been coming to playgroup for? Uh, for a year and a half. So I started coming with her older brother and herself, so he's five years old, but he now goes to school, so now I just come with Mia. And why do you, why do you come? Why, why keep it up for a year and a half? Um, Mia really enjoys it. I think it's really good to be surrounded by the kids at her age. She's two and a half. It's also good for me to socialise and not be bored out of my brains going to parks and all the rest. So yeah, it's a good thing to do during the day. Ian says this is another aspect of the appeal of playgroup. Unlike daycare and preschool, which can take years to adapt, playgroups can be developed around the needs of the community an example of one of the less obvious playgroup benefits. Playgroups were adaptive and responded to changes in social and economic circumstances in ways that perhaps commercialised childcare or long day care couldn't. What we mean by that is that we see the development of grandparent playgroups, of dad's playgroups, of playgroups devoted to particular educational philosophies, ethno-specific playgroups, and so on. Another benefit Ian's research found was in relation to the sharing and volunteer economy, as parents and carers want to give back to their community. We also attempted to measure the economic benefit, uh, if you like, of playgroups, uh, which was a difficult task. But we found that playgroups contributed to both the sharing or volunteer economy, sometimes called the gift economy, and it also contributed to the market economy. And it did so in this way. We found that um, with the former that playgroups were sometimes the first opportunity for parents, particularly new parents, to engage in volunteering and volunteer activity. And that pattern of volunteering tended to continue as the children moved through the stages, moved out of playgroup into school and so forth. So sometimes uh, parents who were engaged in running the community playgroups would then move on to taking um, leadership roles in, in schools and school councils and so forth. 
Jackie says that she moved into managing the Annandale playgroup for this very reason. She wanted to give back. It's a volunteer-run organisation. I had been coming for four years. I appreciated all the volunteers during that time and the work they did and the effort they put in to make it such a lovely space every week. Um, And so I wanted to give back to our playgroup. I wasn't in a position to do it before this year. My girls are close together in age, so it becomes a little easier to invest that time when they get a little bit older. Um, But it's been very rewarding. Ian's research also found that parents get the opportunity to maintain or build on skills that are helpful in the workforce, such as leadership, confidence and self-esteem. And I guess this surprised me, perhaps it shouldn't have, that playgroups were an opportunity for them to either retain skills that they'd developed in the paid workforce before moving into the parenting stage of their lives, and indeed sometimes to develop new skills that they were then able to take back into the formal paid or or market economy. I asked Jackie if she felt she had gained new skills coordinating playgroup, given she is currently a full-time mum and a teacher by trade. I think that, if I'm honest, being a mum or dad is substantially harder. It requires more work skills than anything I've ever done before. So running playgroup, in contrast, is easy peasy. The harder job is parenting. All in all, the social and economic benefits are what you would expect for something that is so community focused. I asked Ian why it was necessary we quantified these benefits. Yes, it's very true. And I would stress the significance of looking at the social value of community pay groups and not trying to introduce a complex set of economic metrics into this domain. However, This is also a language that is spoken by policymakers and in order to get policy traction, I think it is very helpful to be able to provide some kind of quantitative and economic uh, analysis to uh, the value of playgroups. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. We all know that hormones drive our bodies, making us grow, helping us break down food and controlling the amount of sugar in our bloodstream. But how do these hormones operate when a woman is pregnant? Professor Tony O'Sullivan is the head of endocrinology at St George Hospital and Sutherland Hospital. He joined us to chat about the hormonal changes a woman will experience during pregnancy. All different hormones change as the pregnancy goes along. So some hormones will be present at very high amounts in the early stages of pregnancy So when a a woman or a couple think that they're going to have a baby and the woman's potentially pregnant, she can go to a local chemist, buy a urine test, which will actually measure a hormone called HCG, which is very high within her blood and also in her urine, which will confirm that the pregnancy is positive. Now, it's one of the hormones that goes very high during the early stages of pregnancy, 
uh, and there are other hormones that, depending on the stage of pregnancy, will go higher in the latter parts of pregnancy. So when we're talking about pregnancy, I guess the thing that most people would know about is the changes in your breasts, like you get breast milk. Is that controlled by hormones? Sure. Yes, it is. So when a woman falls pregnant in those early stages of pregnancy, the breasts will enlarge, mainly due to increased size of the breast tissue itself, but also increased fat mass within the tissue. And that'll be under hormonal control. So, for example, hormones such as estrogen will also play a part in that, as well as another hormone which we call prolactin. As you can think of the name there, pro for lactin, it's an important hormone in preparing the breast for lactation or breastfeeding after the baby's born. What about other organs that get affected? I believe the heart and kidney play a pretty important role here. Yes, certainly as the pregnancy progresses, so into the second and third trimester, there'll be an increase in blood volume within the pregnant mum. And as a consequence, hormones control the retention of fluid through the kidneys, which can often lead to some of the symptoms that pregnant women notice, such as swelling of the ankles and occasionally feelings of bloating. Now, it's thought that these changes are what we call physiological, so they're not indicative of any problem with the pregnancy. They're actually just showing how the mother requires an increased blood supply in order to pass on nutrition to the developing baby. You mentioned you you get things like bigger ankles there. Are these physiological changes things that go back to normal once uh, the mother has had the baby? Yeah, generally um, all changes will go back to normal. So, for example, uh, the fluid retention that occurs within the pregnancy for the mother will generally go back to, to normal fairly quickly. Having said that, there are there is evidence that some features don't completely go back to normal. So, for example, the body fat that some women put on during pregnancy may not completely go back in all women to the amount of body fat they had before their pregnancy, especially before their first pregnancy. There are changes to the skin, some changes to the skin such as pigmentation or dilation of blood vessels which generally go back to normal following the delivery of the baby but in some women for some other reason we don't know they're left with some of these more permanent changes. And what about gestational diabetes does this have anything to do with the hormones? Yes it certainly does and this is where we're moving away from physiology or natural biology into problems that are occurring and it appears that the hormone we use to help us metabolize glucose or sugar is a hormone called insulin. Now as the pregnancy progresses the amount of insulin the mother has to produce is increased but even the amount of insulin that the mother produces doesn't seem to work as well so they develop a mild condition called insulin resistance. Now, generally, that will resolve once the pregnancy is over. However, in some women through the pregnancy, this resistance can be problematic. And so as a consequence, blood glucose or sugar levels rise high and therefore they develop gestational diabetes. 
In fact, it's the predisposed women to gestational diabetes are things like being quite overweight before the pregnancy or gaining a lot of weight during the pregnancy. The hormone environment is uh, its quite important to have a good hormone environment, to have a good, healthy baby. Um, but if you've got, you know, really, if you're living in a very stressful environment and you're raising stress hormones, does that have an impact on the, the baby? Yeah, I'm not sure whether we know whether it's directly related to our so-called stress hormones, but there's certainly hormonal problems that can occur that might raise your blood pressure, for example. Now, it's been well shown that high blood pressure during the pregnancy can be dangerous for the mother, but certainly dangerous for the baby as well. And that, again, can predispose women to developing high blood pressure again in future. Professor Tony O'Sullivan, Head of Endocrinology at St George Hospital and Sutherland Hospital. forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2scr.com forward slash thinkhealth. We're also available on demand. Just search for Think Health in your favourite podcast app. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Lee Beter. See you next week for more in health research and news.